Hello, hello. Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. Preeti, we Brad. are the Bali Effect. And what do we do on the Bali Effect? We talk about life's pivotal moments and any Woo-hoo! moments in any lives that kind of make you shift and think about things differently. I know we have like a specific one-liner tagline, but I... <laughs> We're, we're still we're still novice at all of this stuff. So how are you doing in the last, I guess I talked to you 12 hours ago? Listen, my whole life changed in the last 12 hours. So there you go. Um, well, no, not really. Um, we're still in a pandemic. But I went out this morning. I went mm-hmm. to the farmer's market. I walked there. It is a beautiful day. I got my sunshine. I got my... You know, I got more stuff for the garden. I got more stuff to eat for the week. So I always feel like I'm on top of the world. It's like a very wonderful routine that just de-stresses me from the week that just happened. Feels like a strong restart. Yes, it's, I loved it. So yeah. I, I had the completely opposite morning. So, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. What happened? Uh, you know, I woke up and uh, read the email about, so we did a podcast last night and there was some technical stuff. So I like was trying to figure out if it was the microphone or the Wi-Fi and that between, you know, now we're actually, what I loved about doing the podcast, honestly, was that my appearance was negligent, right? It was sort of like, okay, I'll look kind of decent for the, um, the, when we get to the podcast studio and a few videos and pictures, but now we're actually recording all the podcasts. So then there's this extra effort that goes into getting ready. So that took up some time. I mean, I could have woken up earlier, but anyway, it is what it is. It is what it is. Listen, I I rebuke any sentence that has the words your appearance and negligible in them next to each other. (laughs) But that's just me. Maybe I'll, 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 yes, no, I I think that you look terrific. You always look terrific. And we, but it is, it is a little bit of a moment that I certainly can relate to having to think about what I'm going to look like to do these recordings because normally look I have a face for radio so now it's like oh golly (laughs) it's more not wanting to embarrass myself in front of our illustrious guests you know you you don't see me in all the all the different ways but (laughs) (laughs) but well I mean like oh girl you let yourself go in a pandemic no I think the point is we've all had to adjust different things this is certainly a small thing Right. This is just saying, okay, we want to do something we've always done, but we have a different format. And I think a lot of creatives are trying to figure out, you know what? We are creatives. A lot of creatives are trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to reimagine life. And usually when we start these podcasts, um, you ask me a question, right? And I, I feel like we never came up with that in particular sort of format. We did come up with the eight to 10, five to seven minutes of us chatting beforehand, but I'm going to ask you a question today Uh oh oh okay Okay. all right and um (laughs) bring it (laughs) and and for those listening and our guest i will say that even the question that d usually asks me i get beforehand um i didn't read it last night that's fine but i have not sent (laughs) i have not sent you this question so this is truly a an impromptu conversation okay seat is hot okay all right so over the course of of being home and, and, and sort of actually even when we started the podcast and social media and working with you more, I have um, realized that you're an incredible writer. Now, I, you know, it's you've not yet written a novel. You've not yet written something, you know, um, but even in the in the short amount of whether it's a social media post or an email, it's so lyrical. And beautiful. And so my question to you is, have you, is this something that you are focusing on? Is this something that's just like, oh, I didn't know. I just kind of send these things out. I didn't realize. (sighs) You went there. I did. It's, (laughs) I just, I want to know, like, is it something that comes naturally to you or, or have you always been writing? I mean, we've talked about this a few times. You're, you're a lawyer. So, you know, for me, it's such an, all of our guests have been, including the one we're going to get to today in a couple of minutes, um, are so multifaceted and, and multidimensional. And so, um, yeah, you know, what, what do you think about your writing and what do you think about how it impacts your life or how it fits into your life? 
Whoa, you are coming out the gate with a big one. And first of all, thank you for the compliment. That means a lot to me. Because for me, writing, writing for work is just writing for work. It's like just another piece of the job, right? But when I write things that really, to me, I, I have some sort of connection to, it's so deeply personal. And it doesn't have to mean that I'm, you know, revealing all these details about my life, but it really does come from within. And so it feels like I'm putting a part of myself really out there when it gets, you know, written down or, or encapsulated into whatever language can hold it. And that's why I think I'm, I'm figuring this out as I'm trying to answer the question. I think that's why I've been running from it for so long. Mm. My journals, I've kept journals from the time I was very young. Like I think I started around like seven or eight and I still journal now. Me too. And girl, wow. See, I and like not necessarily regularly, but when I really am feeling huge amounts of emotion, I just need to get it on the page. Like that is how I, you know, word vomit or whatever. Like it, it feels safe there. It feels effective. And then it, it's something that I can tuck away. And I know that I, listen, I can be taking a shower and a whole narrative and a whole story just like come to me, like sentences come to me on the train, uh, you know, or, or in the middle of conversations. And I have all these ideas and I feel all this guilt because I want to do something with them, mm. but it's almost overwhelming. It's like, all right, I have like two jugs in each hand and I have a whole tidal wave of stuff coming at me, it's not even going to hold all of it. So you know what? I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to do what I can in the few hours that I'm awake during the day. And most of that is devoted to just trying to hustle in New York. But I know that I need to get to it. And now, even this podcast, like seeing how, all right, if you set a concrete goal and you just commit to it little by little, you can make something of it. And so I, just before the pandemic had started, started working on uh, a written piece. And now the focus and the goal is to get things off my plate work-wise so that I can turn to it and see what comes of it. But I appreciate, I truly appreciate the compliment because outside of like college, I haven't gotten much feedback for any of the stuff that I've written. So I don't know if it's any good. I really don't. I, I, hey, you know, um, I read it and I'm like, wow, that's so beautiful. And, and and it's like, it's basically, you know, and it could be anything from, hey, what are we doing tomorrow on the podcast? But somehow you make it sound so incredibly lovely. And, you know, thanks for sharing. Thank you for sharing, because I, I, I know sometimes it's hard to get put on the spot and sort of answer these questions. Well, I know it's hard because you've done it every week to me at the <laughs> beginning of every podcast. And I, you know, yesterday was, we went right to relationships, which, which we haven't talked much about, but it's one of my, I guess, areas, something. I don't want to even say expertise. I don't even. I, I will. You give the best advice though to me. Um, but, you know, this is a great segue into our beautiful guest today because, you know, yes. relationships and writing and creativity. And I'm so excited to have you on today. Please welcome Deborah Kahan Cole. Deborah is Hi. joining us today. She's not only a dear friend from, wait, you're going to hear it again, from Masala Bunga, which comes up on every single um, conversation, but that's how Deborah and I met. She is a mother, she's a wife, and she's an author, uh, notably of this uh, latest book, latest poetry book, Escape of Light. She's a producer of a short film. Um, she's won many accolades. You know, when I was trying to uh, put all of this together for the intro, I said, okay, the, the, she has too many awards, and it would take most of the <laughs> podcast to go through all this stuff. But um, much of your writing, Deborah, is informed by unique experiences and challenges of growing up and ultimately leaving the insular world of Hasidic Judaism. Deborah, welcome. 
Hi, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to virtually meet Didi. Um, but very, very thrilled to be here. And I'm just so glad that you found my life story intriguing enough to uh, to talk to me about it. <laughs> Happy to share. Listen, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know how to answer that because it's, it's beyond intriguing, you know, and I guess, you know, one of the first places we should definitely start is, um, you know, as I just mentioned, and as, as you've told me, you're born into a Hasidic family. And for those unfamiliar with what that is or what the community is like, could you sort of explain what it means and, and sort of some, yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I was born and raised in Borough Park in Brooklyn um, which is exactly, as you described, a very insular Hasidic community. And um, it's, it was a community that, similar to other Hasidic communities um, in Brooklyn specifically, which I know a lot about, um, was founded by uh, Jewish people who were fleeing the Nazis. So it's really, um, we have a heritage of uh, Holocaust survivors in our families. I mean, growing up, um, every single one of my girlfriends who went to an all-girls school, of course, very religious school, um, we all had members of our family who were um, expats, you know, Eastern European uh, people who, who re really um, survived the Holocaust, uh, survived communism, and just, you know, came here to start a new life. And when they came to, to the new life, they brought with them all um, the traditions and the strictures of uh, you know the laws and the way of life that they had uh, in Eastern Europe for for so long, so that's really um, the the general background. Um, specifically, it's about uh, following uh, a very detailed set of laws that govern your every waking moment and even sleeping moments, your habits, your thoughts. Uh, you know. You have to live a way, uh, a godly life, uh, a life that um, that brings that brings respect to to the way of life, you know, and you govern yourself accordingly. Um, so I found, I mean, a lot of people. It's a big community. A lot of people uh, find it very comforting, and um, you know, surrounded by joy. Uh, there are, there are always people around. There's a lot of kindness in the community. People are always out to help others. Um, but for me particularly, I, I found it very constraining. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's narrow, you know, you live in a narrow world, um, where you don't really see or know anything about life outside your own world. So for me, it was, it was more of like a cage, than um, than a place for me to grow and flourish personally. So yeah, but um, you know, look, I think many groups of people, certainly folks that immigrated from other places. You know, um, my parents grew up in India. Uh, I was first generation American. We we had uh, we had some of those same governing ideas, if you will. You know, um, whether it's based on religion or culture or practices. But somehow um, it, it didn't feel as constricted as what you're explaining from your community. What do you think that difference is? I mean, there's a lot of similarities, right? There, there is like and like, and and again, religion and and a basis for, you know, foundational ideas. But it seems to me that the Hasidic community seems a little isolated and and not as integrated as as um, maybe my parents were or our community was growing up. Yeah, I think you you've you know definitely hit it on the head. It's the isolation comes from the idea that um, there is a general fear of um, of the influence that the outside world can bring. Um, you know, children might get ideas that uh, might that pull them away from the traditions, uh, might pull them away from family, um, and so I think it was a general idea of let's keep to ourselves. Um, let's teach our children, you know, education is kind of an interesting, it's, it's a very interesting, um, seesaw because when I, when I first left and le leaving was, and continues to be a journey, it wasn't like, okay, I'm opening this door and now I'm out, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it was this constant 
and it, it continues to be this constant, um, I'm going to go and explore and, uh, but I'm, I'm pulled back to family and guilt and, uh, you know, shame, then I'm going to venture out a little more and all that. Um, but, but in terms of education, I remember uh, meeting someone when I first started going to college after I was, um, divorced and had a young son. It was my first, my first foray into, um, higher education. And, uh, I had gone to a high school that I was one of the lucky ones that actually we had some secular subjects. You know, we read books, you know, Huckleberry Finn. And that's right. I really got into reading a lot. Um, so I had some what of an education. But when I went to college, I remember speaking to someone who said, um, oh, I, I had mentioned like, you know, I'm, I'm not really educated. I, I didn't know a lot going into college. I didn't know. I had no background for college. And somebody said to me, but I thought Jewish people are so educated. You know, it's like one of the things about Jewish people is, is education. And I had to think about that one because education in the Hasidic community is so circumscribed. You know, there's a very specific type of education um, and a very specific type of education that's absolutely not allowed and not encouraged. And education for boys. And, and only Hebrew education, uh, you know, or Jewish education. So there are a lot of rules that had to be, you know, navigated. I, I didn't, uh, were you homeschooled? And is that part no. of, okay. Oh, uh, uh, no, it wasn't. It was just, um, we had, so it's a dual curriculum. Okay. Um, you have Hebrew studies half the day and secular studies half the day. And there are many schools, it wasn't mine, but there are many schools that don't teach, especially with the boys, that don't teach secular studies at all. So okay. it's called a yeshiva, and it's a Jewish school with a, a rigorous uh, Jewish education, um, and it's orthodox. And so, as especially for boys, as they get older, they sort of drop the secular education part, and, and really, there's nowhere to go from there in terms of it's very hard if, if a person leaves the community, very hard for them to navigate in the world because they, they don't know anything, you know, math, science, how to write, you know, we're talking about writing, writing a paragraph. I mean, these things are, are difficult. So I, I was lucky. I mean, I went to high school, um, but some of my friends didn't, you know, or they went and they only studied, you know, Jewish subjects and were expected to get married right after high school and start a family. And so there really is no path after school for anything outside of family, you know? So I think that that's, you asked about isolation. That's pretty isolating, I think. Deb, at what point did you start to, one second. Um, at what point did you start to see the lifestyle that you were born into, were raised around, as potentially isolated such that you're like, maybe there's something else that I might want for my life moving forward? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I have, I don't want to give the wrong impression. You know, I didn't have a horrible childhood. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. You know, I had, um, there were many fantastic moments. I mean, I, I was very creative in school and I you know, I was the captain of the dance team or whatever it was like we did performances. Um, and so I was always choreographing dance and, um, mm. I loved reading, you know, when I didn't have to hide my library books from my father, <laughs> I was able to read. Um, I loved music, you know, but if it wasn't Jewish music, I always had to hide it. Um, so I think, uh, so I got married, um, at 18, you know, right after high school. And I think it was, then when I wasn't in my parents' home, but I was sort of in my own home, but it, it seemed that it was just more of the same, more modeling after, you know, what, uh, how I grew up. I think that's when it started to feel kind of tight. <laughs> now was was and, this marriage, sorry, just this marriage was, was, uh, someone your parents picked for you? Was it part of the community? So it was following the same path as, as yeah. everyone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, I, I met him. I mean, there's I don't know if you guys saw uh, there's a new Netflix. Yes. Uh, called Unorthodox. I yeah. uh, did see it and I it stuck with me for quite some time. I watched it, of course, you know. Yeah. Did you see the, do you did you consider it an accurate 
reflection or could you relate to yes. that story? Yeah. Yes. So the the um, just a, a little background about that is um, the film is actually two parts. Um, the part in Williamsburg, the Hasidic community, mm-hmm. is based off of a memoir um, of the author, and the Berlin part is fiction. But the that part, the memoir, the mm-hmm. Williamsburg, that's all. I found it very accurate. Um, and to keep in mind, because a lot of people who don't know anything about the community will take a look at this and say, this is everyone's experience. Right. It's not everyone's experience. Mm-hmm. It's this woman's experience, but her experience mirrors many women's experiences. And, um, for me, there was a lot about it that was familiar. I mean, all the, the traditions, the laws, the shaving of the head, all like, you know, the, how women are either treated or uh, the standards that women are expected to meet. Um, Yeah, all that is very familiar. You know, interestingly enough, I think many women could relate to the character, regardless of, you know, community, religion, um, because, you know, know, the, the feeling of I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but I'm not living the life that feels authentic to me. Um, the the way the story was portrayed, I felt many people would would resonate with the character, even she, men. Yeah. Right, right, and I, you know, and I totally agree with that. Um, it's interesting because in my writing, I just um, about a year, no, less than a year ago, a few months ago, I published a story um, in a, a literary magazine called Lunch Ticket, and the story is called Red Bird Rising, and it's pretty much autobiographical. And when uh, friends read it friends who know nothing about the Hasidic community, that's the reaction I got, which is, um, I didn't have this particular experience, but I get the, you know, the struggle of a woman who is not where she wants to be, mm-hmm. who doesn't, can't really put her finger on what's wrong, but knows that this is not the way she wants to live and needs to make a change and needs to, um, create, circumstances where she could live her her true life her authentic self you know and that's what you know it, that's what makes it non-insular and I don't even know if that's a word but that, that we're so all all connected through s- such significant themes you know makes me feel more connected to to everyone else but I want to get back to when you when you decided it was the moment so you just gotten married and you're living in uh, your home yeah, so I, I was married and I had um, my oldest son, who's now 27, 28. I think he's 28. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to kill me if he listens to this. Um, so, you know, he was very little then. And I think it was, I was trying to figure things out um, based on my comfort level um, with how things were going. It was, it wasn't so much the relationship. It was about me versus I'm going to, I'm going to use me versus, even though it's like a, it's like a battle, uh, metaphor, but it was me versus the religious strictures that I felt were, I just felt very incomplete. Um, I couldn't find a way to, to, I, I was looking I think I was just searching for who I really was outside of the the labels, the label of, okay, you're my daughter, my wife, my mother, my, you know, who, who am I outside of all these? Um, here I was, I was an observant Orthodox young woman with a young child, a husband, um, my husband, you know, I, I was working, I was a teacher, um, but these were all things that I was expected to do. A lot of all my friends were all doing the same. Uh, my sister had done the same. Um, we were all doing it because it was something that you just did. I didn't feel like, you know, these weren't my choices. They were just choices that were made. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I, I think the, the term I'm looking for is agency that um, I didn't know it at the time. But, you know, upon reflection, that's what it it really was. I didn't have agency in my life uh, to make my own choices. And even if I ventured and I did venture to, you know, form opinions or to say what I really wanted to do, it was inevitably met with, 
kind of condescension and ridicule and why would you want to do that? And, you know, that's not allowed and that's not, uh, you know, it's frowned upon. And it, it seemed like there were just doors slamming shut a lot in my face. And so, it, you know, over the years, it contributed to um, this restless feeling of uh, this is not the life that I want to be living, you know. At that time, did you have anyone that you were able to confide in about what you were feeling, this restlessness? Like, did you have any siblings, girlfriends, uh, your husband, or did you have to keep that all inside? Totally inside. There was really no one, no one who I felt safe enough to confide in or no one who would understand. It was really, there was a lot of fear of censure uh, for me. I mean, if I would say something or or express unhappiness about things, it would be my fault. It would be, um, you know, it would come down to what am I doing wrong? You know, um, I didn't really feel like I had a support system that would that would encourage questions. I mean, I I, I literally got answers if I would ask questions. I would get answers like you're not supposed to ask questions. You're just supposed to believe or, you know, so there was really no one to talk to. So it kind of boiled over. <laughs> you know? like walk us through yeah. the day, the day, you know, the day of, um, okay, today's the day I'm, I'm leaving. Oh God. What was... I, I want to know. I think everyone wants to know really book chapter and verse. <laughs> yeah. Tell Pun's us, tell intended. Us. Uh, the most difficult question because there, there is no one day. Um, there's no one day. It's, it's a, an amalgam of moments of um, searching. You know, I want to see this show. I want to go out to Manhattan. I feel like I want to study literature. Um, I want to write and publish something that no one will, you know, look over my shoulder. It was one thing after another. I want to wear this. I want, you know, and a number of these moments and they're small moments. Um, I think that's what it was. It came together where it was, uh, an implosion kind of thing. Right. right. So was it that you picked up your son and was like, I'm out? Was there a planning process? Like, you know, how did you go from being married with a son to, to being a single mother, um, in college, correct? Uh, yeah, eventually I made my way to college. I brought him with me at night. I was working during the day and then he came with me at night. And um, how did I go from the state of marriage and religion to the state of single mom and being not religious? Um, very difficult. Um, uh, threats, uh, community, you know, coming down on me. If you do this, I'm taking your son away. Um, losing custody. Uh if you ever want to see your child again, you have to um, comply with X, Y, and Z. Uh, very difficult. Very difficult. No, I mean, no support at all. Did I, you just family turned and... against me, and it was very bad. <laughs> yeah. Did you just leave in the middle of the night? Um, did you have <sighs> a safe place to go? How? What did it look like? actually physically <laughs> departing. It's like, I refuse to give the playbook. <laughs> on oh, how to sorry, do sorry. Okay. No, but if you feel well, comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Or no question. How long did it take to transition um, physically to a new space? Cause definitely it, the, as you were saying earlier, yeah. it's still a, a process, but right. how long until you were just physically um, living independently? Uh, that took a while. Um, I reached out to, when I was leaving Borough Park, I reached out to a friend out on Long Island who I knew she was religious, but she wasn't Hasidic. She was like uh, what we call modern Orthodox, where uh, lived in a different community that was much more tolerant. You know, she wore pants, she didn't wear a wig. I mean, there are a lot of um, different ways to be Orthodox, and this is one of the ways. So I felt that she was she was a good friend and she was much more tolerant because she wasn't part of my community. And so she wouldn't judge or censure me. Um, so she helped me find uh, an apartment. She helped me find um, a school that my son could go to <clears throat> that would follow, that would, would be a blend of where my ex-husband would allow my son to, 
to go, you know, would would still um, approve of it. Um, and so we we worked together on that, and she really helped. Um, yeah. Are you still in touch with her? Or are you yes. Yeah. We've been part of each other's lives for a long time. That's like a good friend. <laughs> That's a very good friend. Yes. Yes. And then, okay, so then now you're, you're um, air quoting, free, right? You're, you're somewhat out of this, you know, you're, you, it's a deep breath, a sigh of relief. You've, you've gone through a pretty difficult time trying to remove yourself. You're in this new community. Your son's in school. Now what's going on? Uh, so it was a matter of navigating, like you say, a newfound freedom, which, mm -hmm. which it didn't really feel like freedom yet because I was still very much bound to my family and the community because I had my son. And the only way I was able to have him in my life was if I followed certain rules. So, um, whether I wanted to continue keeping kosher or whether I wanted to continue keeping the Sabbath, I had to continue a lot of these things that I otherwise might have given up, but because I wanted him in my life, I had to continue. So that's why I'm saying it was, it wasn't really stepping through a door to the other side. I was for years, um, tethered mm -hmm. to the place I had left. So it was very difficult to leave because of that. Um, so, but I did feel a freedom in terms of that. Oh, I can get a job that I want. I can go to school. So first thing I did, <laughs> so, um, I started at uh, a community college and then I moved to Queens college and that's where I got my degrees, uh, undergrad and two graduate degrees there, uh, one graduate degree there and one graduate degree somewhere else. And, um, that was one of the most amazing times of my life. I was, I was so into it, you know, I was like mm -hmm. an amazing student, you know, I was like 26 years old. <laughs> Here I was just studying and it was so fantastic. Um, so that was, that was definitely moments of freedom. And that's where I started with the writing because I had so much to process, you know, that I was still going through it. I felt that, um, you know, poetry and, and stories just came to be the way I would process, you know, and that's why the, the poetry collections, um, are really, you know, uh, coming of age stories in poems. Um, the first collection, which was published a couple of years ago, um, is, I think, more descriptive of the community that I left and my actual experiences. And a lot of it is difficult material. Um, and then the second collection that Preeti mentioned in the intro, um, Escape of Light, which was just released in the pandemic. <laughs> so, Congratulations. Thank you. A couple of weeks before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very difficult to have up book launches during this time. But this collection is, you know, the title is um, Escape of Light. What um, I actually quote, uh, I quote Leonard Cohen, <laughs> of course, but I also quote um, uh, Stephen Hawking where um, he has a quote from his speech, one of his speeches where he's talking about black holes and he's actually saying that black holes are not as as closed as you may think. There is a way for light to escape a black mm -hmm. hole. And to me, that was so evocative of, of you know, my experience or how I see myself in terms of whatever I may have considered uh, difficult circumstances or constraints mm -hmm. um, or, you know, strictures that kept me closed and down. Somehow it is about escape. For me, uh, my mother thinks I'm always trying to escape, <laughs> but, and she, I guess she's right. Most mothers do. <laughs> I, I know so the feeling, Deb. Yeah, I right. Exactly. Yeah. What, what are you trying to run away from? Is it really so terrible? You know. <laughs> um, so the so the new poems are. I mean, and they're not new. They're just it's a new collection, but they're more of um, poems of emergence. I think of how I see the world, and then how I personally, as a poet, as a mom, or as a, a person in a relationship, or as a human, as a Jew, um, how I see the world and how I emerge into whatever place I would like to be. Um, so I think there's like that difference between the two collections. Um, but, you know, people, are, a lot of people have asked me, you know, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? You know, we, your story's so interesting and it's so fascinating. Why don't you write a book? And I'm like, well, you know, it's all, it's all in the poem. <laughs> 
if you're you, like read the you know, poem, read the poem yeah. then you know you'll pretty get a pretty picture deb i have um uh, I might take a different turn here and you might steer yeah. me right back to the writing, but, um, but I think this, this, this conversation ultimately did come through in your writing. I remember you and I sitting in your car, um, maybe for, I don't know, maybe in the past five years, I would say, um, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that we had met through Masala Bhangra. So it might've been after, um, it might've been after, uh, a class or, or something that we're doing, but and I am for sure, I think I remember going through some relationship issue. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> which seems to be always the case. And we're sitting in your car and you were telling me about, um, uh, uh, you know, your relationships, your marriages, plural, correct? And I, I remember thinking in that moment, you know, looking at you at that particular time, I thought you had all of it together, man. You know, you you are married with to a great guy who is super fabulous, and you know you live in a beautiful place, and um, your kids are great. And so, to for me, I remember sitting in the car thinking, "Oh my gosh, she has been through, you know, a significant amount of of emotional, I don't want to say turmoil, but emotional an emotional journey through relationships." So I'm curious if you're if if you're comfortable talking a little bit about that, you know, com like your first relationship, which we all know is, you know, sort of mirrored upon what we grew up learning and understanding to, to your current and, and sort of some themes along the way and, and, you know, your discovery of yourself through those relationships. And by the way, it was a great conversation. That's why I'm bringing it up because I, I, I th those are some of the conversations I wish we could, we could give to everybody. I'll see if I could recapture cause I don't really, uh, uh, you know, I don't, well, you know, I some of the things to you, but um, so many, some of the themes where I, I just, and, and again, you, you you can feel free to move away from it. But I, I, I thought I recall a theme of, of your family, not you not being part of your family because of certain relationships and there being a distance there and, yeah. and sort of overcoming that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it cause it's, uh, it's my reality. Yeah. Um, so you know, the way I've described to you guys um, growing up, for me, there was really no way to define myself outside of what was expected of me. So uh, as a child, I was expected to be, uh, you know, a good daughter, a dutiful daughter, a good student, a respectful daughter, you know, a good sister. I don't know how good I was, though, <laughs> as a sister. I don't know. But um you know, so that was expected. Then, you know, getting married right after high school, as was done, um, for me, not knowing anything about the world or anything about relationships, um, I mean, we don't, we had no contact with boys at all, like zero. That's no, familiar. Yeah, right. So <laughs> school yeah. girls, and, and not a lot of talk to boys, you know, if you get caught, oh my God, God forbid, things like that. So the dating process, as you saw in Unorthodox, uh, is um, you sit across the table from a, a stranger, a boy who, you know, my parents had told me about him, um, but now I was getting to know him. So we had uh, across the table, dining table conversations uh, like three times, and then we got engaged. And then we didn't see each other um, for nine months. He went off to Israel to study, and then we got married after, you know, that period of time. Um so we're talking about relationships. So that relationship was really, you know, a very young couple who know nothing. As you said, Priti, just um, mirroring what they know from their parents. You know, this is what marriage is like. This is what relationship is like. Um, and I think that there's another concept of like habit, habit as opposed to thought. You know, you do things, you end up doing things because it's familiar. Uh, but not necessarily because you put your own thought into it. I'm saying this obviously about myself, not because I thought about it or have an opinion about it, but just because it's the way it's done. So that was the first relationship. But then after I got divorced, you know. Um, Can I jump was, in and just ask? Yes. Sorry, very quickly, Deb. Did you, were you in love with your husband or did you love your husband? Did that evolve before the marriage ended? Um, no, we had, we had a good we had a good relationship in the beginning. Um, okay. yeah, yeah. 
yeah. Okay. So I'm going to leave. I was it just there. curious. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, that was my uh, my experience. We it was it was a good relationship. He's a good person. Um, so in terms of relationships post, you know, my first marriage, the only way I knew, and I think this is what we spoke about, yeah. the only way I knew how to be accepted or loved was to be married. I didn't know how to be single. I didn't know. And, and there was a lot of fear about being single, about um, not being a part of the family, not being accepted or acceptable. Um, you had to belong to somebody, you know, you either had to belong to your father or you had to belong to your husband. There was, for me, there was really no other way with my, whatever was going on for me. Um, so I ended up getting married more times than I should have because I couldn't just have a relationship that wasn't marriage. First of all, it was not allowed. Uh, you know, you can't be with a person if you're not married to them. Also, I had my son who was young. And if I was in a relationship with someone and I wasn't married to them, I would either lose my son or the relationship. And so I married two more times after that. So I was already three. And then after the third divorce, um, so I'm, you know, you could just call me Elizabeth Taylor. Well, <laughs> I, you know, to just add levity to this, I think the conversation was, Deb, how do you get married so many times? Like, I don't understand. She was like, okay, listen, let's have a real conversation about why I got married. So many right, times. right. Exactly. Let's, let's just talk about that, you know? Um, and I'll just also some levity here. I was doing a poetry reading, um, at Cornelia street cafe, uh, in the village, which has very sadly closed down. Um, but anyway, I was doing this reading, and one of the poems I was reading um, was at, is actually in the new collection, and it's called, um, oh my God, it's called, <laughs> hang on a sec, uh, it's an unusual collection, it's called an unusual collection, and it's sort of, um, it puts the reader in like a museum of husbands, you know, like, what are you looking at, you know, the, the, the exhibits of marriages, you know, what do you get? What is left over for a, for a museum exhibit from a marriage? That's sort of the construct. Mm. <laughs> I'd so, love for you to read a little excerpt for that of that. Uh, oh, that's guess. cool. I could do that. All right. So, um, you know what? I'll read it because it it uh Great. it will it will answer. We'll speak to what I, I'm just trying to say about it. Hang on. A Bali <laughs> effect first. Uh, yeah, a little reading. I love it. Okay. Um, this is an unusual collection. An unusual collection, the visitors murmur with a puzzled crease. But what exactly are we looking at? Bits of string, buttons, green pennies, and the occasional stray Israeli shekel. Ribbons festooned with dried frosting. Some giggles. The perfect ponytail. A someday boy who'd bestow mystery kisses. And don't forget the playing cards. A queen of hearts, a queen of diamonds, a future flecked with shards of relationships, all taken from Bubby's little drawer near the stove in secret for keeps. An unusual collection. Bubby's bits of string became my baubles. I took for keeps the forgotten things, the things no one else wanted. Bits of string, buttons, a drifter niece, a handful of husbands. Apartments so bare, almost anyone could perish in them. What you take for keeps, no one expects you to give away. Four husbands equals three gets plus one kisuba. An unusual equation. And don't forget the kids. How do they all add up? A couple of sons from this one and that, plus the two daughters. And don't forget the stepchild whose emerald eyes belong in another's face. An unusual arrangement. Bits of string, buttons, an old glove, a new husband. I took for keeps the forgotten things, the things no one else cared for. A lost nephew, the lone beta fish that refused to die. Fridges full of nothing, and neighbors who knew when to leave well enough alone. An unusual collection, the visitors muse, amazed. But how on earth did she have the nerve to marry, then leave, then marry again? 
the Museum of Husbands hosts an unusual exhibit, where here one may view pronouncements stamped and sealed by rabbis and esquires, 12 lines long, signed here and there. We now proclaim this erstwhile wife free to curate an unusual collection, teeming with tales and bits of biography, the patina of the past and the music of memory. So that's my poem. <laughs> and um, a get is, you know, it says three gets plus one kasuba. A get is a document of divorce and a kasuba is a marriage contract. So it's sort of collects everything. But what I wanted to... Well, so you're, you're probably looking at our reactions because um, that, was, that was stunning. Stunning. Thank you. Mesmerizing. I feel so lucky that we got that reading this morning. <laughs> Um, wow. Beautiful. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. it. Huge <laughs> gifts. Huge <laughs> gifts. That was amazing. Thank you. I'm I want the book. the book. Where can I find <laughs> it? We usually get there at the end. But... <laughs> we'll get there at the end. Yeah. Deb, yeah. Before you but, get into the story, but I, okay, go ahead. Go. I'll ask after. Go. Keep going about this poem. Um, about this poem particularly, um, I was reading it at, uh, mm -hmm. at Cornelius Street Cafe, and after the reading, you know, uh, the people would come up and talk to you about your book, and you get a sign, you know, you sign books. And one woman says to me, an older woman, she says, "You got married four times. How did you get four people to propose to you?" That's I the question I had. <laughs> <laughs> That's what ended up is in the car. That's why I was like, "Come on, tell me, <laughs> what did you tell her?" <laughs> uh, well, for her, you know, I didn't know her, so I left it at that. I laughed, um, but for you or anyone else, I mean, that's a funny question. How to get yeah. people to propose to you? Um, I don't know. I, I think I think part of it, and it's it's definitely not a complete answer, but part of it is that I had grown up always knowing, I think innately how to be what someone wanted me to be. Like, do you know what I mean? fit the bill for this particular person, fit the bill, not necessarily in, um, not in a, a manipulative way, you know, but, but because there was only, for me, there's only one way to be accepted. And that is, you need to be this way. You need to speak this way. You need to act this way. And, and I think maybe years of that conditioning came across in dating. What experience did I have in dating? You know, <laughs> I got married. Yeah, I, I know. had a kid. I don't think there is an answer to that. I mean, right. I've evolved a little bit since that day in the car. So I'm, I'm super <laughs> sure you did, cognizant of, of, of there's probably not you know, a specific formula or answer, but, um, as you were reading the poem, you know, um, and sort of touching on what Didi talked about earlier, where, how is the creative process in the words and the story I want to tell is a poem versus a novel? Mm. reverses the book because poetry is almost lyrical, right? And and it felt very much like you were singing a song during it. And I don't mean to be so, you know, rudimentary about that that sort of analogy. No, no, but you're right. But how what what was it for you that that felt as though this was the right medium to sort of talk about your experiences? Um I think I fell into poetry because um, I wasn't ready to tell the story. When I first started writing, it was just for catharsis. Mm -hmm. And it was just because the thoughts and emotions that I had in my head um, somehow lent themselves to lyrical words. Um, and the repetition, the, you know, the syllables, the, the meter, I felt was, was a way of telling a story that I could do or that felt natural. Like this, this example, you know, um, it's not necessarily telling the story of, okay, well, I got married at 18, like I'm doing here. And then I got divorced. And then I found this guy and I found that guy. And I, but instead it's, it's a moment or a glimpse of mm -hmm. what someone who's reading it can look at and say, oh, this is what I see as, as a, a feeling, you know, mm -hmm. an emotion, as opposed to a narrative. Um, some of my poems are narrative poems, but I, I find that poetry allows for um, 
a snapshot of mm-hmm. what am I feeling right now? You know, in this poem, what I was feeling was, um, you know, I, I'm in this and what, what have I left behind and what have I taken with me here, you know? And it, the image for me was a museum because, because it seemed like this astonishing thing. Maybe I had written this, I don't remember, but I, I could definitely see how I might have gotten the inspiration to write this after someone would say, wow, I, I could never even imagine something like that. And, I, and to me, that is like, oh, you're looking at a museum of, you know, of things that you would never know otherwise, right? Why do you go to museums? You go because you're seeing things that you would never otherwise encounter, or you're seeing things from long ago, you're seeing things that are new to you and unfamiliar. And that's, I think, where that image came from. Um, Yeah, Yeah, because uh, listen, I'll admit, I don't know that I read a ton of poetry, you know, my preferred storytelling ingestion, if you will, is novels and narrative. But what I found so interesting, and it's a combination of you reading and me knowing, and you telling your story, but the amount of emotion that I immediately felt you know, whereas a narrative, it's sort of, it, you kind of get to the emotion where this is, this was like a shot of, of extreme, um, right. emotion at once. And, and it, it really, it's, it was such a, it's such a different experience. Yeah. You know, I, I have a question just in <clears throat> really listening to the conversation or in listening to the conversation about your conversation between the two of you, it's clear, Deb, that you did come to a place where you were able to create these very, very deep connections with women outside of your community. Can you just tell us a bit about when you started to evolve in that way, when your relationships, um, where you started to realize that you could be loved outside of marriage by people who were not your husbands? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think that my well, let me let me see how to phrase this. My relationships with women um, come from a very deep sense of connectedness uh, uh, and shared experience. So, as Preeti said earlier, you know, even though my particular story is one of a Hasidic upbringing with rules and strictures. Um, many women can relate to being in a place that they don't feel is the right place for them. Many women can relate to being, uh, to living a life that is proscribed as opposed to living their own authentic truth. Um, and, and so when I reach out to women or women reach out to me, uh, I think that's the underlying, um, understanding that we connect over because, um, there are so many women I've met, like Preeti, like uh, other women who've either read my work or heard my story or talked to me, that feel, oh, I know what that feels like, or um, what advice can you give me, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on what I've done badly or well, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, sort of coming out on the other side and having some more perspective. Um, and I, I, I feel for women a lot because. Um, because of what I've been through. And I can imagine that every woman that I meet has something going on for them that is not what they truly want. Um, you know, and, and I think that that just brings me closer to women. And I, I like, I like helping women. I just, if I can, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think even men can relate to that. Um, the simple pressure of, look, there's this expectation that I'm supposed to be X. And yet here I am feeling that Y actually is more natural to me, more innate to me, um, more tied with my actual identity. Um, But for women in particular, so much of the expectation and the pressure that we can deeply internalize without realizing it is related to so much of your value um, is going to be tied to your relationship to a man in mm. some kind of way. And that can be very limiting. And so this leads me to my, my next question. When did your relationship with yourself become a priority? Because it's clear that you are very, very evolved and you have a deep sense and understanding of your worth, who you are. When was the moment that came about? 
or a series of moments? So I have uh, uh, two answers to that. One is uh, a moment that really stands out um, when I called my mother after I got divorced for the third time. And, and I was still very young, so I was maybe 31 or 32. And, um, and I told her that we were splitting up. And she said to me, well, who's going to want you now? You know, and I had heard versions of that my whole life. You know, mm -hmm. at my first divorce, who's going to want you? A divorcee with a child. You know, so I've heard mm -hmm. versions of who's going to want you. You're yeah. not religious, who's going to want you? You don't do this, who's going to want you? All that kind of stuff. But this... Still was... gorgeous. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. But this was so pivotal. I remember where I was. I was driving. I remember I, where I was on Long Island. I was driving. I was on the phone with her. And she said, well, again, you know, another one, she said it to me in Yiddish, uh, you know, another divorce, who's going to want you? And I don't know where I pulled this out, but I said to her, it doesn't matter who's going to want me or who doesn't want me. I want me. Yes. And I, mm -hmm. I was like, damn, girl. You know, like, I really yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even believe it. Where did that come from? But it was there. Obviously, it was there. But I was mm. able to access that thought and that emotion and that response, I was able to access it. And it blew me away. First of all, that I was able to talk to my mother that way, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, you know, because I was, but, but here I was, and that was where I found my backbone again, mm. where, you know, it's not about a man and it's not about getting married again. And it's not about, you know, I mean, and I said to her, look, look how these other ones worked out and didn't work out. I mean, what is it? What is it about that? You just have to move on to the next guy. Um, it's about me. I want me. It's okay if nobody wants me. I'm good. I, I feel comfortable and I feel confident in myself. And um, at that time, I was um, I was a principal of a school, and um, so I had gone from teaching to being a principal. And I remember in the middle of the, I was a principal for five years, and uh, I was instrumental in building the school from a handful of kids when we opened to you know 600 students. And um, in the middle of this tenure, uh, because it was a religious school, it wasn't, it wasn't a Hasidic school, but it was a religious school, um, I was afraid to be divorced or to get divorced. Um, there's so much confusion about what name to call me or, or how could I be um, the executive of a school if I was unmarried. That was unheard of. You know, so so one reason I may have stayed in that third marriage was because I didn't want to be divorced. I was afraid of losing my job. You know, there's so many things that women have to deal with that mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. But I found my backbone and I said, you know, this is who I am. I want to live the life that I want to live. And so um, so that moment of confidence was was so resonant with me. And um, and then finding myself. So this is, I've spoken to Preeti about that. I've spoken to so many, especially Masala Bangra people. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I found myself. So I got married. Oh, so here's, so I got married to my husband. His name is Tom. He is amazing. Preeti knows him. Um, and he, and I have three children with him who are also awesome. But now in the pandemic, they're maybe a little less awesome, but you know, <laughs> trying to deal with it. Um, <laughs> And, um, and my husband's very supportive of me and very loving. Um, and this is something completely new. So I think that when I met him, I was at such a different place in my, in terms of self-image. Uh, I, you know, I met him after my third divorce and this was on the heels of my mother saying, who's going to want you and me saying, I'm going to want me. And, and then I met this person who was so unlike any of the other men that I've known. Um, and that really helped me to, I know it's still relating to a man, <laughs> but within <clears throat> the context of the marriage <clears throat> and the relationship, I was able to, to flourish in terms of writing, in terms of um, finding a voice, you know, and I had my kids like, you know, there were, I had, three kids, three small children on, you know, all at once under the age of three and or five, I don't even know, <laughs> three under the age of five. And so it was very hard to be um, anyone other than mother and wife for, for, for that amount of time. But 
knowing me, it got to the point where I was like, oh my God, this is not who I am. I wear many other hats. It's not just being mom. And so that's when I went to Alvin Ailey and I said, you know, it's time for me to recapture dance, which I, I've been dancing in different capacities since I was a kid. And so I started taking classes and, um, and it was a blessing because this was like, okay, it's time for me. And that's when I discovered Masala Bhangra and completely changed my life. And I met the most incredible people. I mean, just warm and talented and brilliant and a family. And to answer in a meandering way, <laughs> your question about finding my authentic self, that was very crucial to me saying, you know what? I can be many things. I can be the mom and I can be the wife. And I can be the daughter. You know, my relationship with my family is is largely um, patched up. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> with most of the members of the family, which is, uh, is huge. Uh, and, and I also get to do things that I love. I get to write. I get to dance. I get to carve out time and energy. It's not just about finding time in the day, but it's about finding the headspace and the passion to, you know, to for other outlets besides family. So yeah, so dance, writing, I mean, these things are, are, are important. Deb, yeah. uh, we, we go through this every podcast where we get to the end and it's like, I need, I have, I need a couple more hours more, to talk more, to you, but uh, one, one thing, you know, listen, uh, Masala Bhangra, Serena sometimes forgets the community that it's created and the healing that a lot of us have gone through the connections the people that we've met through that platform. But, um, so, you know, it's always, I mean, this, this podcast, I met Didi through Masala. So I think there, there's so many things there, but, um, one of, one of the things that really resonated to me, you know, is the moment that you said, well, I choose me and I, I wish, you know, everyone could know that. I wish every woman struggling could say to themselves, you know, I, I, I choose me and I'm okay. And, yeah. you know, that's been a path I've struggled with for many years and, and it gets, it gets better, you know, yeah. it certainly does, but any sort of, um, parting thoughts on, you know, life now and what you're excited about in the future to sort of conquer or any advice for those of our listeners who might be contemplating, you know, a big shift, a big, a big pivot to something into the unknown. Uh, so this, this reminds me of, um, I, I did an interview with Forbes a couple of years ago and it was, it was about this, about, uh, you're a mom and now you're a poet and how did you do the shift and how did you do both and how do you, you know, um, so advice is don't forget about you. I, I can't say this strongly enough. You have to be a priority. Um, there are so many things that take us, that take us away from our own path, family, responsibilities, work, uh, you know, illness. And um, I think that it's very important for, and I'm going to say especially for women, but, but for everyone to, to carve out um, a niche, an emotional niche and a physical niche, like, like for, for a space for you to do what brings you joy Mm. And, but before we can do that, we have to recognize that we are worth and worthy of that space. You know what I mean? Because like, like my little anecdote, well, I, I, I choose me, you know, it took me years and many, many, much, many tears to get to that point. So first to recognize that you're worthy, um, of joy and then to make it a priority, you know, within the confines of family and work to make a priority what you love to do. And that will only fuel you and, and put more in the bucket so that you have more to give. I, I find that with, that happens with me, you know, um, was that the, was that the question? <laughs> that's a, you know, a I think great that, answer. To that's a perfect ending, um, yeah. to, I, I'm going to just call it now part one with Deborah Kahankul, because I think we definitely need a part two and, I have more to share. <laughs> yes. No, we, you know, the, this is the thing. We always find that there's more to share, which gives us opportunity to chat again. But um, for folks listening, um, definitely uh, on social and everywhere that we talk about Deborah, we will give you all the information, an amazing website, 
DebraCahonKolb.com has all of your media, creativity, books, um, access to to all of your work and anything else you want to plug. Books available on Amazon. Yes, um, books are available on Amazon and the short film, which we didn't even talk about. But you know what? Let's let's save it for part two because there's a lot more to talk about. I yeah, think. for sure. Yeah, Escape so. of Light is the name of the book. Yes, recapping. Excellent. Ooh, light. Beautiful cover. <laughs> you can find yes. that beautiful poem that you you recited for oh. us earlier. Yes, today. it's in there. Yeah. Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. We can't wait to talk to you again. And uh, we love you. Thank you. Thank you you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. And and you guys are great. And rock on and keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you, Deborah. It's been a joy. And you are a joy. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect. And we'll see you there. Thank you. Check us out.